Hello and welcome to another episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by my friend and host of the Stratford Paddock, Casey Evans, to discuss all things Manchester United. Casey, welcome to the show. Uh, hey, thanks for having me, yeah. Uh, it's good to be here from uh, sunny Manchester when you're over in actually sunny Dubai. But yeah, thanks for having me and I'm glad to be talking about a club, as you can obviously see by the poster behind me, I quite enjoy. <laughs> and also sure as well. So unfortunately, Casey, I might know you a better, a bit better than most other people. But uh, would you mind giving people a brief introduction about yourself and I suppose the remit of the show that you guys do at the Stratford Paddock? Well, yeah, uh, as Connor's probably alluded to with friend in <laughs> I used to go to uni with Connor. We were both at UCFB. I think we ended up, we were on a, got stuck next to each other on a flight to Qatar. So that was kind of like eight hours of forced bonding. Um, but yeah, since then I've been at Stratford Paddock. I've been one of the um, sort of ter- secondary to tertiary hosts behind, like obviously you know, well known as Stephen House and Adam McCullough, Jay Marty, all that sort of thing. But yeah, we uh, we focus on Manchester United, which we kind of like. We kind of like looking at it in a kind of objective view. We try to avoid you sort of like oh reactionary sort of thing. But yeah, we, we've got like a good. Good setup there. We talk about general football and like the Premier League shows. We talk about mostly Man United. We do podcasts. We do previews. We do watch-alongs. We do news every morning. So if you want to know anything about United in terms of like news and transfers, make sure to check in Stratford Paddock. It's always good to have people there. I'm also, it makes it a bit worth standing outside Old Trafford at seven o'clock every morning to talk about whatever news has been popped up in the uh, it overnight. Well, I suppose if you're looking at the two guys there, like Adam McCall and Andy Tate, they're like the Bruno Fernandes. Who would you compare yourself to? Um, I'd, I'd say in current United team, I can't really think of. In old United teams, I'd say in the Darren Fletcher. Understated. King of versatility. Uh, one of those, yeah. like Understated, gets the job done, knows his role well, just is there and kind of just keeps stuff keep stuff moving but um yeah not one of you don't catch many headlines but uh, i think I, I think i do a decent job <laughs> brilliant um so as you know casey growing up in the west of ireland most united fans i know are kind of by association of birth by family if not the others you know there would have been a certain time within the sir alex ferguson period that kind of would have ignited that passion within them. As a local lad, Manchester born and bred, growing up in the terraces there at Old Trafford, what was that period like just watching the greats like Cristiano Ronaldo, Wayne Rooney, Ryan Giggs, Paul Scholes? Oh, it was great, wasn't it? Like, you can't really say anything other than the fact of when, when your team's top of the league by that much and it's kind of like top of the tree, it, it's probably what Bayern Munich and Juventus fans have been thinking for the last decade of just like, yeah, we've, we've, we're absolutely sick of us, we're mint. Um, well, yeah, in terms of in terms of like you said, where it's by association of birth and stuff, I couldn't have been anything other than a United fan. My mum would have absolutely murdered me. Not my dad, my mum. My, my dad used to be an Oldham fan. He wasn't when he married me mum. <laughs> That's the sort of thing. My mum's a absolute diehard United fan. Used to go to all the matches. Sorum got relegated by um goal that goal by Dennis Law like years and years ago. Hint towards her age there. She's not going to be happy with me, <laughs> but um. Yeah, it's it's sort of that thing. You look back at it now, and it's 
it's something you didn't truly appreciate while it was there. The sort of you watch clips of it and you watch like just the the style of the goals we scored, the amount of goals we scored, the different goal scorers. There were so many names that you could like. Obviously, now you say Bruno Fernandez, Marcus Rashford. And they're the sort of the hallmarks of this team and who scores all our goals and who you can rely on to carry a match. In in the old days of United, it was really just a complete and utter crapshoot of who it was going to be that day who absolutely pulled you through. Was it going to be a real Ferdinand defensive masterclass? Was it going to be Nemanimic winning a header in the box? Was it going to be Patrice Ever absolutely storming it down the left-hand side and getting a goal like he did against Bayern Munich, which is always a weird one for me, but like absolutely storming it down the left-hand side? Was it going to be like the midfielders of Tom Cleverley and Anderson pulling out absolute masterclasses despite them having the ability between them of like a wet carrot? Um, <laughs> Ronaldo, Tevez, Berbatov, Rooney, like Ruud van Nisselrooy back in the day. It's just like, it's that sort of thing. You never you never were worried because you knew that one of the players was going to pull it through. And it was really just, it's fantastic to watch and it's heartbreaking to look back on. You know what though, it's a strange thing to say, you know, as a Chelsea fan myself, but just looking from the outside in, was Sir Alex Ferguson underappreciated? Because obviously the level of drop off, you know, after he left in 2013, you look eight years later, United still without a league title. I mean, was the great man underappreciated? It's a strange thing to say, but I think there's an argument for it. I mean, he was definitely, it's a bit of both. Let me put it that way. It's a bit of both, I'd say. As a manager, I think he gets all the plaudits he deserves. Some people try and throw, oh, here's Bob Paisley, or here's this Dutch manager who created wingers like 50 years ago. And it's like, okay, we can you can have that conversation because I know it's just because you're a fan of that player, of that manager. Just, 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 just accept. Just accept what Ferguson did with a team and just accept it. And most people are take Ferguson either the best or one of the best. And that's fair enough that like most people in manager, but I think it was very unappreciated how much he actually controlled and managed every area of United, like scouting. He was first to the door of every scout came through the door. Obviously we saw some duds, <laughs> took some people's words on certain Portuguese wingers. Um, one very good <laughs> one called Bebe, but but <laughs> in sort of that sort of sense. Um but he he managed that, he managed the board very well. Like obviously he was able to talk to the owners and deal with the owners a bit better than managers have since and obviously we've seen complaints since then. But I feel like his relationship with the Glazers was a lot healthier than you've seen since in terms of I think like they came in and they were like, well we can't make a big scene against Sir Alex Ferguson because yeah, yeah. this is what he's doing. Um but yeah, I think he managed the team very well. Like the youth teams all knew that the style of football and what he wanted to do because he came and saw the youth teams. He came to talk to the youth players. Like it, how much, how much Manchester United became Sir Alex Ferguson's in terms of throughout the club, he had such an influence and such a control. I think, um, which obviously when he left. And him and David Gill at the same time was probably one of the, the big points, but especially Ferguson when they that, that kind of just went. <laughs> and I suppose if I had to push you for one standout memory during that time frame, what would it be? 
Ooh, right. That's this is a big one. Van Persie against Aston Villa. That's that's the that's the that's the most recent one of that Ferguson one. That one was like that was that was that one where it was like we've had a great season, but that was like the, the crowning achievement of like we are min we can score that sort of goal. Um eight two against Arsenal. That that was fantastic. I watched that. Um I watched that at home with my parents. That was just an absolute like mad game. Uh what else was the the four three against City, the community shield when Michael Owen scored. Looking back now at how terrible Michael Owen actually was for us, that was a that was great. That four three community shield against Manchester City. And yeah, I, I think just the Champions League final in two thousand eight, that was that that was fantastic. I mean it wasn't a bet the great game, but just the way we won the penalty shootout and the fact that we can rub it in so much against Chelsea fans to this day. And I'm sorry for bringing it up, Connor, but <laughs> John Terry's slip to this day still is is a great like a great piece of enjoyment for me. And especially Van der Sar's save against Nicholas and Elka as well. It's just a it's a fantastic kind of a crowning achievement of a great season. Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up, Casey. I actually cried myself to sleep that night. <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's fine. I, I I enjoy myself. You you can bring up you can bring up twenty. I cried on um on the twenty on the twenty twelve uh, Aguero because obviously like I wasn't watching that match. I was watching the other match they had on TV. Because like Manchester United have won it. Obviously beat Sunderland one nil, and it came through. It was like City have scored a goal, and I was like, it's fine. We've won it. Like it doesn't matter. They need to win, and then it just literally like cuts to you saw it like the screen just went small. And it just cut to Manchester City, and I was like, no, 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 no. And I watched that clip to this day, and and to this day, Ned Evanua could have put a foot in. And I swear, I swear down, he could have put a foot in. Like, he just definitely didn't. He said, he said, he, he, he literally, like, the, the fact is, is obviously, like, I, I commend City, the, the fact is we completely dropped off, and they took advantage of it, and they had a great team. And played very well, but in that last game, Nedman knew literally said before the match that the dream scenario is QPR stay up and City win the league. That's literally a quote from an interview he said before. And because they actually got the, the match, the match got delayed by five, ten minutes. They knew before the game finished that they were already safe because of results had gone their way over else. So a little bit of little bit of me is like. As I also because I because like I know people who know Ned Manua because he used to go to my school. Um, he's just he's like a diehard City fan. <laughs> like he was probably happier than most of the City players <laughs> that they'd won the league. Yeah, well, I think it's a good point to bring up because you look at that QPR team that played Man City that day. There was obviously mixed allegiances. I know they were going up against Bolton, you know, and trying to survive. You know the, the dreaded drop that 18th place position. But on QPR's team, you had the likes of Ned Manuha, Sean Wright Phillips, Joey Barton, all former City players. And of course, you had Rio's brother Anton, who made the last <laughs> the last gasp tackle on Aguero as he knocked it in. But it's just amazing even talking to you now about these moments over the years, although nostalgic. And it's kind of heralded in the birth of a fan culture, so to speak. Premier League, you know, even talking about the revered Sir Alex Ferguson years, that Aguero moment. It's amazing, you know, fast forward to 21, I know we're in the middle of a pandemic and with everything going on, but do you see that side of the game slowly dying out? It's a strange thing to say, but like, 
really and truly in the last few years, I can't really think of too many memorable moments, especially when you have the likes of Man City and Liverpool being so dominant as they are. Is that a strange thing to say? I think it's kind of divided because obviously as as a match going fan, like especially last season, because once I went to uni, I uh, dropped off going to matches and then I got my uh, season ticket last, again. Uh, I got my season ticket last year because I just kind of died between matches in the past. Um, in the in the in the ground, it's completely like tribal fan culture, abusing the away fans to your left, screaming at the people on the pitch in front of you. So um, I was there for the the two 0 versus Man City where McTominay scored and um, scored from miles out into the open net. And you could, if you saw like the fans there, the, they say fan culture wasn't dead because I literally guy stood next to me. I look this way to celebrate with the guy next to me, like uh, turn round, that guy's gone. He's halfway down the stand on top of someone, and he's just literally, like, uh, and I'm like, this is dangerous, but I don't care because we're just one two nil. But I feel like it's a sort of I, I try to say because I'm I watch a bit of like American sports and you see it a bit more in American sports where everyone kind of has an appreciation of everyone. Sort of like you have your team that you support and there's like there's a couple of celebrity fans who are like diehard like do you see Drake on the on the court line for Toronto and absolutely abusing LeBron James and stuff like that. But you see like in general in American sports, especially when you have the NFL at Wembley. Everyone's kind of got an appreciation for everyone. They just like to see a good game played. And I think I think during the pandemic, that's kind of been emphasized because because every game's on TV now, or like I'd say 90% of games are on TV. Everyone's just watching it because it's on a lot of the time. And we're getting so many like fantastic high scoring games. Like we're getting like four threes, United six twos, another nine nil. Like you, you never thought you're gonna say, oh yeah, another nine nil within a year um but everyone's kind of watching these games I'm like yeah i have great appreciation of these footballers i have great appreciation of these players like a lot of fans probably would have gone man ah, mason mount's just frank lampard's sort of golden boy but because a lot of people have now actually watched him play i'd say he's quite a good player he's probably chelsea's best player <laughs> when you actually put him down to it definitely yeah but i think a lot of people are more accepting of that fact now because they've seen it it's sort of like the TV age that's been caused because the pandemic has allowed other people to kind of mellow slightly in terms of the appreciation of other teams, I think. And then, unfortunately, bringing it back to the present day or the present incarnation of Manchester United, you know, the nil all against Chelsea last Sunday, right? So you've Manchester United, the global... Do you say handball? Do you say handball? Sorry, what was that? <laughs> nil all handball? Listen, right? So United have played seven times against the top six this season. Five of them have been nil all draws. And including in that, you've lost to Spurs 6-1. <laughs> What's going on there? What's that about? I think it's a half and half sort of scenario because I feel like a lot of the emphasis is put on United have got the nil all draws. But I feel like the way we play a lot of teams kind of set up differently against us in terms of how they play because obviously I thought Chelsea play quite low and quite deep and just tried to counter us because I feel like it's the thing with United and it's kind of the difference between United now and United of the past is we still have those flashes of brilliance but they're a lot farther between 
Like you see, like sometimes we'll have two a game, sometimes we'll have six, sometimes we'll have nine. That's that was the Southampton sort of like I keep bringing that one up. I just I just was happy. I was happy that day. That was like that's a proper United game. Um, but yeah, you have those moments of brilliance that are uh, spaced out, and I feel like most teams realize, especially the big teams, realize that if they just basically defend really well when we're playing that five-minute fantastic football, we won't probably trouble them for the next 15 to 20 minutes um, easily. And it's it's hard to say because I don't... I don't say players played badly. And I, and, and obviously, like, there's been other instances before, like, obviously, the last eight where we've, we've won games against Liverpool, we've won games against City, like all that sort of thing. It's just kind of, it's just weird to watch sometimes because obviously like the no-nil draws, I think it's kind of like a lot of the teams have realised that we can actually, like the season before, we can actually play football now. Yeah. <laughs> we actually can win a game with like a Marcus Rashford or a Fernandez. So I think a lot of teams have realised you need to press Fernandez in the midfield, which is easy. Like you just make sure he can't get too close to the box and distribute it because that's where he likes to be. You just press him so he's a bit further out. And Golo Kante did that really well at weekend. And he kind of, um, you just need to stop those moments of brilliance. So I feel like it's a lot of how teams set up as well as how United kind of need to get more consistent with creating great chances. I think it's very much like the chicken and the egg, really. When you look at last season, United were playing quite distinctively a 3 4 1 2 where you had the two wide forwards in, be it Greenwood and Rashford, Rashford and Martial, and Bruno at the tip, leading the press. And last season, you got great results. You beat Chelsea three times. Uh, United beat City. They drew with a Liverpool side of a rampage in the whole division at the time. And but they we were won that game as well. That was absolutely that, that that draw at United was was annoying because it was just such it was such a nothing goal we let in as well. I was like I was so annoyed with that because I was like I was like we definitely deserve to beat in that game, and it was with Andreas Pereira on the pitch, which made me even more <laughs> irate because I was like we've we've got a terrible team and we we deserve to win this game. Well, I mean, if you look back then, United, although successful against the top teams last season. They were dropping silly points, weren't they? To the likes of your Bournemouths, your Crystal Palaces, Newcastles. And I think the big change this season, you've seen Ali, he's gone from a 3 4 1 2 to more of a 4 2 3 1. And you see in the big games, McFred, they're really solid, but they're not exactly the creative material you need in the middle of the park. And I think the only two occasions this season, off the top of my head, where United have reverted back to that back three has been the away win at PSG and the 3-2 last away to Leipzig. So you can kind of see there's something going on there with Solskjaer. And then, of course, you have the levelling off <laughs> with the very decisions, which you can't be best <laughs> too best pleased about, Casey. It's, it's, it's consistency. That's the thing with VAR. Like, it's just such a weird thing to say, because obviously, like, there's a lot going around from United fans that Klopp's influenced the decisions, and you kind of are like... Your rational mind at the start of it was like, you can't affect what a ref does. It's like, it, it's just how refs are that one or two decisions won't go your way when they've been going your way. But it's just been a constant like stream so far of, again, Sheffield United, Billy Sharp literally doesn't go for the ball and pushes the hair in the back and they score off it, doesn't get disallowed. 
Maguire jumps for a ball against Ramsdale, who jumps late for a ball, so he's obviously going to lose it, heads it down to Martial and scores, and it's said that, that Maguire's interfering with the keeper, even though he's made a completely fine challenge, and that gets chalked off, and then obviously we don't play well and situations happen. But it's like, it's frustrating because both we should be playing better than we are, that we don't need to keep relying on, like saying, oh, at the end of it, is that we got that far, we would have been one and up thingy. But then at the same time, it's like, it's moments of games that define the game from that point onward. You could say that if a game's going to go one way, one goal or one moment in a game, like a yellow card, a red card, a, a foul goal, penalty, whatever, changes completely the direction of that game. As soon as Chelsea go a goal down, if Chelsea went a goal down from that penalty, which we could probably say is most likely because of Bruno Fernandes, you probably wouldn't have defended as deep. You would have probably pushed, committed a couple more people forward. Hudson and Dye probably wouldn't have been as defensive on the right-hand side. And there's so much that would have just been slightly tweaked in that team that probably wouldn't have been completely obvious from the uh, from the naked eye. There might have been a couple... You could have probably said, oh, I can see that a couple more people have pushed forward, but it could have been like, oh, we don't want you to keep tackling. We need you to get forward more, maybe start your runs a bit early, like those little tweaks. But that could have affected how Chelsea could have then completely whitewashed us and won 3 1. <laughs> or we could have gone and scored some more goals because you weren't as focused on defending at the back. So it's it's frustrating to see at points because, like I said, it's like a, the two way system off. We shouldn't keep having to keep relying on them. But at the same time, like it's very demoralizing and very frustrating when there's such clear ones, especially, I mean, like Hudson Adai. I've seen the argument and I think the best argument for it is in football at the moment, that shouldn't be a handball. It was a jostling and it probably shouldn't be a handball by football and standards, but by the laws that they've set down and been making penalty decisions on this season, his hand was in an unnatural position. He made a he made it, the ball change direction and he gained an advantage from touching it because then it led to Greenwood handballing it. Which I saw some people arguing. It was like, oh, well, they both handballed it, so it wasn't a handball. And I was like, yeah, but one handballed it first, and therefore that's where the foul was committed. So it's like, there's not really much of an argument there. My big problem with Fair, as you said yourself, is just consistency. Uh, you know, like I'm a diehard Chelsea fan, but even I have to admit, I thought, you know, with the current stipulation of the rules in the game, I thought that was a clear penalty last Sunday. Look at Manchester City last night against Wolves. Laporte offside by virtue of his bloody armpit. It's gone beyond yeah. a joke at this stage. But, but then... it, it's the problem. Yeah, I was because obviously I was, was going to say the problem is is that people keep blaming the technology, and that's where I think the frustration keeps. Like everyone keeps going, oh, the technology is awful. Like why is it that this line on the pitch says he's offside? It's not offside there. That's not how football is played. It's like oh. He's obviously handballed it, the VAR's thingy. But the fact is, as soon as VAR goes, we recommend the, 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 the ref to go look at the screen. They think it's a foul. They instantly think there's something wrong there. Then it's the fact is it's how it's interpreted and how the rules are interpreted and how it's been applied, where the problem lies. Like the fact is they could easily solve the handball rule. They could say, if it's if it's this much distance, like we'll put down a red line, and if it touches the red line, this their their line, if it touches that red line. It's fine. It's onside. That could easily solve the rule. Like I was talking to my mate about it, and I think it's implemented in some leagues in the world. If the line of play is online with the line of 
what they deem to be the onside line, if it's touching or crossing at all, that's onside because there's there's not enough there's daylight there. Then they say daylight's fine. In terms of like the seeing it recently with the pre, with the ref, the ref has been they're going there. It's like he's recommended he's going over to the screen. So that means that they think it's a thing that we saw it against Chelsea. We saw it with Chris Cavanagh against. I think it might have been Tottenham. I can't remember. I don't know exactly. And he literally comes over, looks at the screen once, walks off. And it's like, well, he's never going to change his mind then, is he? Like, <laughs> he obviously instantly knows what he thinks is. So he's not, he's not really looked at it. He's just literally looked at it and gone, oh, it's all right, I'm off. Don't think that's a pen. And it's like, well, isn't there some sort of thing where the interpretation should be if the person in the box thinks it's a, it thinks it's a, like by the rules, because they both have the same rule book. They think it's a pen. They should trust the person in the box to be like, it's a pen. And it just, I feel like most fans would accept it if they went, here's a replay. By the interpretation of the rules that we have at the moment, that is a pen. And the guy has looked at this three times and told the ref on the field it's a pen. And because he's missed it, he can't really make a decision on it. Like, I feel like it's only for the ones where he, they know they need a second opinion that they should bring the ref to the screen. So I feel like we've oversteered and overcorrected in terms of that, in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it just personally funny myself that given when we spoke last year, last season, you were a lot more happier with Fair than you were now. What's changed? <laughs> it's, I mean, obviously, like, Fair is anything in football. Fair is, Fair is just, a, just an extension of what people used to think about referees. Like, when decisions were going your way, you were happy with referees. When they go against you, you're unhappy with them. I mean, like most football fans, even if it's a completely reasonable decision, will be angry with a ref for at least the rest of the match if that changes the outcome of the game. I mean, and I've seen it in the past where, and I was happy with VAR because I was like, here's a system that no one can argue with. And somehow they've taken a system that no one can argue with. And they've created a system that everyone can argue with because it's completely back to where square one in the fact of they now have all this tech but the implementation, like the referees still have complete control and the, the implementation is completely governed by the same rules that we were all arguing with beforehand. And obviously, like I'm coming from a place now where I've seen so many decisions where I'm like, I can see that's a foul. And I'm not like, and I'm not like a, a, a governing body ref. And like literally when you do the ref watch and stuff like that, on Sky and I feel like that's another thing that's kind of led to the anger with VAR is that every broadcasting service now has just like a ref on hand it's like yeah we'll just ring him up he's just he's just he's just making his tea Peter Walton what do you think about this he's just there with eating his beans on toast he's like agree with the ref on the field hasn't even seen it like he's just like agree with the ref on the field it's like you were a referee and you had this if you had this technology and you could see this you would still not think it's the penalty <laughs> Like he's gone through the back of him or he's, he's handballed it or he's pushed someone over in the box. You don't think it's a penalty. But yeah, I feel like it's just become now it's another like stick to beat referees with. Yeah. Um, I mean, then just getting back to our original point. <laughs> about... We've gone off. We, I mean, to be fair, like you can't, you can't move away from Manchester United with VAR at the moment. So you, you've kept on topic. So I, I'll give you that. <laughs> Well, yeah, you have that have, one. Uh, listen, I won't have any bad words said about Peter Walton either on this podcast. We've met the man <laughs> once before at the Champions League final, the Tottenham-Liverpool game in 2019. 
and had great time from had a great conversation about everything from refereeing decisions to Fungi the Dolphin back in Ireland. So yeah. Have you not heard of Fungi the Dolphin, huh? No, I'm, I'm not heard of that. No, you probably just saw my face pull then. I was just like, I'm out of confusion. And also, why was a why was a Champions League slash Premier League level ref talking to you about a dolphin? But I'm kind of slightly confused by that. Maybe that's what he's been discussing while he's been asking for refs. He's like, no, sorry, I'm just having this great conversation with Connor about a dolphin. Let me just get back to you on the ref decision in a second. Uh, I mean, like, obviously it's his job. And I feel like most referees are kind of under the understanding of they want to protect other referees because... They know how hard it is and how, especially recently when we've seen death threats and stuff like that to referees, which is completely ridiculous. Like in the end of the, at the end of the day, it's a game of football. Like I know I love it and I know it affects my day and it makes me angry if we lose and it makes me happy if we win, but it's a game. Like you don't want, you don't go actually like saying go full pitchfork and fire to someone's house because they're like, oh yeah, I, I think that's a pen and you don't. But, but I'm the one in charge. It's, it's completely ridiculous. But I think that's sort of where he sometimes comes from. He just airs on the side of giving it to the referee because he knows how hard it is at the time. But then sometimes it is just like you look at a decision and you're like, there's no way there's no way you can agree with that. Just, just sometimes just take a bit of objectivity with it. Of course. But then, I mean, you look, we began our initial discussion about fair. I mean, the real kind of where it, matter, where it affects United the most is essentially game state. So as you said, if that penalty is given against Callum Hudson at the weekend, Bruno scores it, you know, that sets up United for the rest of the game because they're back playing on the counter. However, we all know to T that United's big struggle is breaking down a low block. You've seen them this season against the likes of West Brom for recent weeks, really struggled. How do they rectify this? I mean, does Oli go about a change in formation? Is it the existing personnel, perhaps the, inter- the reintegration of Danny van der Beek? Or is it just quite simply go into the transfer market this summer? I think the big problem in that is creativity and kind of personnel in the sense of when without Cavani, Cavani's kind of a different, but our front line is very much of one similar mindset. Like Greenwood... Martial, Rashford, all like being on the ball, all like driving it into the box, taking people on and and shooting. So that's fine to have on maybe two of your players in the team or two of your players in the front line. Maybe one, not all three, because all three then... I I, I, I add a caveat to Greenwood. I think Greenwood's really trying to round out his game, especially playing on the right. I've seen him making more decisions, makings, but... Making more decision makings, that's an interesting statement. He's making better decisions and you still see it's like second nature to him, especially when he's like he's on the ball, it'll take a few seconds and then he'll decide to pass it. And I feel like United miss that sort of final ball player, especially when Bruno Fernandez is when Bruno Fernandez is the only one on the pitch that could do that, it kind of becomes very obvious that United have maybe one or two or three in the squad. Paul Pogba's one of them, but he's injured and he does it from deep. That sort of like cutting past into the final third, breaking on the counter. If Paul Pogba had the ball that Scott McTominay had against you, where he was on the right-hand side and the three people running onto it, I would have been scared for you. <laughs> but when it was Scott McTominay, I was like, this is somehow ended up in someone trying to go into someone's feet and lo and behold, it did. Um, I think 
there is personnel in the squad. Obviously, Paul Pogba getting him a new contract, I'd like to see. He's still a great player and he still plays. He's been playing pretty well when he plays this season. He he controls that midfield really well in terms of creativity and long balls. Fernandez is great. I feel like we need to do need to go in the transfer market because I feel like this team is good enough to top four challenge. I don't feel like it has the creativity that needs to go for the title. Right wing really needs to be addressed. We haven't had a right winger at United since Cristiano Ronaldo decided he was a striker in 2007. And maybe a little bit for Antonio Valencia when he came back in, but then he got injured and went right back. All of our right wingers have been players who are more um, more suited and like to play through the middle more. You've seen Jesse Lingard, Juan Mata, now Mason Greenwood, um, Daniel James. Well, Daniel James is a bit separate, but those first three, they're all central players. And when you saw them against United, they all naturally just tucked in centrally. Daniel James is just more adept playing on the left. He's played quite well, actually, recently on the right. I actually do have been enjoying his performances there. But when you saw someone like Jaden Sancho, and I feel like they made a decent decision on Jaden Sancho because he's probably going to be a lot less now and it allows us to reinvest in the squad, maybe bring in a centre-back. We've seen some good links there. But that right-wing position has been something we need addressing for years because it's just, you see it, you see teams, we play against teams and we're so weighted against the left that if we just were like one time, and, and the fact is, is that because you know we're so weighted against left, you see Juan Bissaka have absolute acres of space on the right-hand side every single match. So it just would, to have options going forward is definitely what we need to look at. And you're a huge fan of American sports, Casey. And of course, you're clued up as regards roster building, as I am myself. Yeah. Now, would it not make sense just to, <laughs> in an ideal world, to usurp Ed Woodward and get in a technical director, you know, probably sacrifice them now for the next four or five years, build that long-term vision in the club? Because for me, it does really smack of a lack of long-term strategic thinking when you look at United's front line at the moment, being mm. propelled, being buffered by an ageing although be it a quality striker in Edinson Cavani, you have the likes of Martial, Greenwood, Rashford, Dan James, they all serve similar purposes. United must be crying out for a technical director, if that's the case. I think the problem with the problem with well, that, like that situ- our situation this year is Martial played so well last year and linked up so well with Rashford and Greenwood last year and that so it, it it worked like the interplay they they did a lot of different things they didn't all try and drive it they sometimes passed it between each other and you had the little intricate passing that you saw so many times this season they would break through lines by one two in it each other flicking it on fantastic goals you saw the fact is is that i don't think i think what happened was is this summer we were like we can have jane sanjo for 108 million and if that was someone like city asking for it it would have been like, yeah, fair enough, checkbook. And that's the difference, I think. When checkbook, fine, and we wouldn't have had, we would have been fine um, in terms of creativity. But we look at our team, and I feel like there is a there is a long-term vision with Solskjaer. Uh, but I think he was like, I need to buy some other players. I need to invest. Like, Donny van der Beek looks like a bad, a bad signing on paper, but I don't think 
if you take it in the chance of the, the, the signing, like, let me put it this way, if you've taken the image of the transfer window, so I know there's Cavani aging, that was meant to be as a rotation option for Martial. Problem is Martial's his form has dropped off a cliff and then deeper into the ocean. Basically, he was the cliff on the side of the Mariana Trench and he's somewhere like halfway down at the moment in terms of what his impact on the pitch is. He seems to have lost all work rate. He seems to have lost any sort of nous in terms of knowing where to go when the ball's being played. He doesn't seem to want to, when he's on the ball, he doesn't want to seem to pass it. He seems to be reluctant to shoot. He's just, he just, when he's on the pitch, he seems to just waste so much space on the pitch and so much like of the creative force and driving force whenever he gets it slowed down. It's just painful to watch, especially when you saw the back end of last season, what he was doing. So then that situation becomes, oh, well, Martial's completely gone. So now Cavani is our major out striker. So now that's kind of completely ruined that plan. Donny van der Beek was signed as 40 million to be a willing and able rotation option for Bruno Fernandes. That's what he was. He was never going to be played in the six. He never was that. I think he was told, you're number 10. When we rotate Bruno Fernandes, you will play. Well, the problem with that is Bruno Fernandes does not like not playing football. And you've seen that many times when he gets subbed at like the 85th minute and we're falling up and he absolutely has a screaming match because he just loves, I think he just loves playing football. He loves being on the pitch and he likes, he likes winning. So in the argument of the stakes. So then Donny van der Beek looks like a bad signing because Bruno Fernandes isn't getting injured and Bruno Fernandes doesn't want to stop playing and he only wants to get rested like once every like 20 games. So Donny van der Beek then becomes a lesser player and also he doesn't even get subbed because Bruno Fernandes also doesn't want to come off the pitch when he's getting subbed. So that looks like a weird signing. I'm trying to think who our other signings were now. <laughs> I think it was just, it was like literally um, that sort of situation. So it's it's weird to look at. Like obviously, going back to the question, I'm going to say something that would get me absolutely crucified by some United fans now. But Ed Woodward has a place at Manchester United. I think that's, I think that's the, the long and short of it. It isn't in charge of the money that is involved in transfers. What Edward does really well is he's a very good money man and he's very good at getting sponsorships and he's very good at keeping. What I think he's done very well is when we've been terrible for the last few years, he's kept the flow of sponsors and he's kept sponsors happy and allowed us to stay in a competitive position. We've just never really took the step back to becoming competitive until very recently. So I think that he still has a place at the club, but he should never be in the public eye. He should be, he is the vice president in terms of commercial sponsorship or something like that, should be put to one side. And then someone who knows about football and knows a bit more and can work with Solskjaer, like Solskjaer respects, Solskjaer trusts, can come in and they can work together and start building a team. Because I feel like that's the breakdown. I feel Solskjaer knows what he wants. Edward Wood knows how to get the money. But there's like a connection point where those two don't see eye to eye on getting the players. <laughs> Whereas like City, it's like I said, the problem with City is it's like City identifies, Pep Guardiola says, I like this player. He fits my style of football very well. I want to get him. They don't go, well, you've already bought three left backs for 50 million. Why do you want him? They go, okay, we trust you. Go and get him. And then he gets a tight winning team. Like, obviously, like, he bought Nathan Ake this season. He's hardly going to... I mean, there's injuries, but it, even looking at that team now, he looks like he hardly was going to play him. John Stones, they spent 50 million on about four years ago, and he's suddenly now come back into the team. Gundogan has been a bit bad, bit part player. 
for years now, he's just kind of covering for Fernandinho. And now he's one of them. I think, he's, is he their top goal scorer? He's probably their top goal scorer now, I think about it. Morgan, yeah. 11 Prem goals this season. Exactly. So, like, the fact is, is that, that he doesn't have to explain his vision to anyone, Pep Guardiola. And I feel like Solskjaer has a vision, but has to go around the houses trying to explain it to Ed Woodward of why he needs a player. Because Guardiola's like, yeah, Gundogan's a good player. He can fit my style of football. And maybe sometime in the future, he can also play some other roles. And it turns out he's very good at playing those other roles. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I feel like that's the difference. That Ed Woodward has a play to United. It's not as a technical director. So I, I agree, yeah. I feel like someone needs to... Um, be signed as a technical director, but unlike other United fans, I don't want to see Edward Wood like, what's it, thrown off the top of the Stratford. <laughs> well, I, I don't think it's the sign of any healthy organisation that the same man that's negotiating <laughs> deals with the latest Chinese noodle manufacturer should be renegotiating the latest terms on a Paul Pogba con- contract with Mina Rayola. That's <laughs> sorry. Do you want do you want Jaden Sancho? Well, let's get him on a tractor because we've just signed the official tractor sponsors of <laughs> the special transfer sponsor of Man United is what's it? Somerset Motors or something? Yeah. I don't even know. Was it Nissan Noodles and stuff? It's just, it's mad. Like the sponsor, like it, it's it's impressive. Like if you look at it from a business standpoint, the fact that you can convince someone you're the official noodle sponsor of Man United, like most clubs will be like, you're the official food sponsor of like. Everton, or you're the official technology sponsor of Everton, and he's like, no, 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 not technology. You're the official app sponsor, but only apps that are in the games market of the Apple Store, and only that have been added since the 24th of February. That's what you are. And they're like, yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. So he's, he's obviously very good from a business standpoint, but from a footballing standpoint, it just doesn't seem to click. Exactly, because, I mean, you mentioned there that United are in desperate need, right, <laughs> of a right winger. They need a striker, they possibly need a centre-half to accompany Harry Maguire at the back. And then you see recent murmurings of Jack Grealish. Now, any football man said he knows Grealish plays on that left wing. <laughs> Where would a Jack Grealish fit in at United and how likely is that transfer to happen? I don't think it is because I feel like Aston Villa now are at a point where they can ask for way too much money for someone of Jack Grealish. I'd love to see Jack Grealish at United. I think he's a fantastic player and I think he offers a lot. And I feel like even if you, he, he favours the left, but it would be a very similar situation to the ones I've just listed of like Lingard, Matt, or that. He's playing the right, come inside. But I feel like he has he's a bit more creatively orientated, so he might work a bit better. Um, you've talked, we've talked about transfers and stuff like that, but... I feel like centre-back is important. I feel like right-wing is very important because it's just creative. Creativity is just void on the right-hand side sometimes. I mean, Juan Bissak's improved his crossing, which is, I feel like, a very understated part of his game this season. But I feel like... Because I feel like everyone has... Alex Tellers has got to be the most expensive crossing coach ever in world football. But he's doing a job. I've got... I'm not going to lie. Luke Shaw has never looked so uh, good going forward but uh, well before his injury but that was in a different it's in a different sort of way in the argument but yeah you, you see rumours like Jack Grealish and that's where I think the divide comes in like it's a very much that sounds like a very business sponsorship orientated deal it, it sounds like oh we want Jack Grealish because he's a big name in the Premier League and a lot of people like him and we can probably market him as a very creative player but like 
they're never whenever you see a player link with United, they're never the 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 dirty signings, if you get what I mean. Like the ones like we really need a DM. Like you've talked about Scott McTominay and Fred. McTominay's a fantastic player and I really like him. I think he does fantastic work going forward and he's a really good, well rounded player. But the reason we play both of them and it Solskjaer does it is because the fact is, is our team lacks a defensive midfielder. And it lacks someone who can put the work in defensively, like someone who's like imperious, like your Indidis, your Thomas Parties before he went to Arsenal, um, your Fernandinho's Rodri's at City. And so he plays both of them because they both can pass the ball reasonably well. Fred, a bit less than <laughs> McTominay, because we've seen how Fred likes it. Fred's best passing partner is the advertising board. Um, but we're more in need of DM, but you never see a DM linked. Bar Wilfred and Didi because he's big money and doing well with Leicester. You hardly ever see those DMs linked because they just don't don't sell shirts, don't sell mm. papers, really. If you were to say, oh, um, United are linked with uh, Lille central defensive midfielder Bubakar Samare, no one cares. Like, he'd be a great signing and he'd do really well. Oh, it's like AC Milan's is Mel Benestere. Those were two great signings who'd work in DM. You'd never seen them linked. Unless, unless United's a bit different, I think, because you can literally link anyone with United and, like, clicking the, click the thing, like, who is it? Like, we really need players. But, yeah, I don't think Jack really fits in. I'd love him to. Mm. Back to the question. But I don't. <laughs> As I mentioned before, though, like at City, they really do have lateral joint of thinking. You have Ferran Soriano, Chicky Bergestein, Guardiola. They sit down on a regular basis to plot out two, three transfer windows in advance. Whereas you look at even the story of as to how Man United signed Bruno Fernandes about this Portuguese intermediary approach from Woodward or whoever was on the United board with these three players, Yao Felix, uh, Ruben Diaz and Bruno Fernandes, United saying, oh, we'll take all three. Well, we got one out of three, although, you know, albeit he's been hugely successful. Yeah, it's not like the other it's not like the other two are fantastic players and one hasn't just completely revolutionized the position he has at City or something like that. I don't know. No, like, he's but not the like best it's back in the league or something. The general premise, it's it's the principle here, I suppose. Yeah. City's more joined up thinking that United are certainly a top down hierarchy. And I think mm. unless that's resolved, I don't see how even the most ardent of United fan could see the, how the club manages to progress over the next few years because I mean for me right from the outside in United are second in the league last 16 of the Europa they're away next week to Leicester quarterfinals of the FA Cup if Ole doesn't but win you, yeah sorry if Ole I, doesn't I, I, win trophy, I, I, if Ole doesn't win a trophy this season is the pressure going to begin to mount no, I don't think. Okay. I was more gonna say. I was more gonna say like what my point was gonna be is like United are second in the Premier League, um, like last sixteen in the Europa, all that sort of thing. But if you told me we're playing West Brom next week, I wouldn't know whether we're gonna win or lose. That's that's more the argument I was gonna say. It's just a bit of a bit of a weird situation. But this is kind of the the situation that we're in. It's a very. I've always said that the problem is, is that Solskjaer's come into a team with a plan of how to build a team. And I feel like he has the backing because he 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 doesn't seem to throw out the owners. He doesn't seem to sort of thing. And I feel like a lot of fans want him to, but why would you? Like, they don't want... 
like Mourinho fireworks got him sacked. Like he didn't get him a better team. It got him sacked. Van Gaal saying, I don't know what to do with this team. Right, Van Gaal's style of football, when he was like, oh, well, I need some more players and stuff like that, when he went to the board, didn't get him more players. It got him sacked. Like, the fact is, is that Solskjaer obviously has a plan in mind. He just knows, he just needs to navigate it. It's not, he has a plan of how to play a game. The problem is it's not his game. Like, he's playing on a board that's not, it's completely weighted against him. He's playing on, he's playing poker uh, on a blackjack table. That's the sort of thing. But he's still trying to win. But it's like how long is a piece of string, Casey? I mean, for God's sake, it's Man United. Mm. So, but then the fact I, is that. What is it except? Oh, sorry. I was going to say you can't. I feel like the fact is, for God's sake, it's Man United died about four years ago, and I've got a kind of like people say, "Oh, it's social that's lowered our expectations." It's not social that's lowered our expectations. Like it's it's. The fact that you've seen three managers come in and completely and utterly try and change a football club overnight and fail miserably. You now got a guy, Solskjaer, who, yeah, made some great signings with Maguire, Juan Bissaka, and then he signed Dan James and that sort of thing. But we've been screaming out for a centre back for four years. So signing a centre back last year was never going to fix the problem because the problem was is that we were trying to sign a centre back to. Um, compete or two centre-backs that both played together for two years. He signed Maguire, put him next to Lindelof. The problem is then Lindelof hadn't been playing with a good centre-back for years, so he'd lost all confidence in his abilities and was now nothing like the player that we've signed for Benfica. Same with Eric Bailly. He obviously had his injuries. Like The problem is, is every signing that Solskjaer's having to make is about two windows or two years behind where those signings should have been made. So we should have been already had the centre backs in line. We should have been when Solskjaer coming in with that team. We should have been looking at DMs and right wingers. Now we're only just looking at DMs and right wingers into next season. Then we and then but now the problem is is our strikers have start misfiring and our strikers have aged out and we're trying to find stopgap problems with Edison Cavani to try and solve that short term. But the problem is is then players like Erling Haaland are coming up. So then we have to make decisions and it's kind of. If he doesn't win a trophy, I wouldn't like to see him sacked because you can obviously see progression like. Mourinho got a second, but I wouldn't have ever said we played well under Mourinho. Like maybe the Europa League run was pretty good, but that I'd say that was certain individual performances carrying us through, which was which is all football sometimes is. But I never say like the style of football that we played on a regular basis wasn't fun to watch. It was very similar to what Tottenham went through before the last couple of games of just kind of like, well, we know this player can do well, just force it to him and everyone else defend and but where Solskjaer comes in it's like there's a good team there and there's a good set of players that on every any given day could win the problem is is you need to remove the factor of any given day they can also lose like the, the fact is, is that we should only only be drawing with teams like West Brom and Sheffield United on the odd occasion we shouldn't be going into those situations looking like we can lose and like conceding goals that just come out of nowhere and I feel like that's what he's got to remove and I don't think that Solskjaer I think Solskjaer is the manager to do that because I feel like he obviously has a style of football he has a style of play he obviously has a plan and just resetting it and going again is never going to get us anywhere because he hasn't got us anywhere for the last three managers I'd like to think though it would be a natural sort of evolution because you look at Tottenham under Pochettino. 
the progress they made was tangible. Although you couldn't mm. measure it in trophies, certainly in points, certainly in you know the kilometers they racked up, their method of play, whatever. But you look at United, United are in Tottenham. For me, there has to be a, a line drawn in the sand where I think next year it'll be the fourth year of this Solskjaer experiment. You need to start seeing silverware, in my eyes. That's what I've always associated Manchester I with. Think, I think we need to do a good account of ourselves in trophies this year. I'd like to see us win a trophy, and I feel like we have the squad to do win a trophy. Like that, That's an argument, and most people would say trophy this year or out the door. I'd say next year it's trophies are out the door is probably the best way of putting it. Like I, I don't want to see him leave, but there's a sort of thing. I think the thing with Tottenham is Tottenham had a weird success. It, it It's so weird to look at Tottenham because obviously like Tottenham under Pochettino had probably one of the best squads in the league. Like they had Jan Vertonghen and Alderweireld who were considered two of the best centre-backs. Moose Dembele was hailed as one of the best progressive ball progressors in the league. Harry Kane obviously played fantastically. Hyunmin Son, Lucas Moura in that spell in the Champions League. They were both like fantastic dynamic wingers. You looked at the Tottenham team and you're like, on paper, that team should batter a league like on any given day. And like, obviously there was the tangibles that they run further. They do all that sort of thing. But there's like, there's just something not quite right. It's one of those ones where it's like the eye test versus the st- the stats, and you look at the tangible. Yeah, it's it's like I could say like you could say a player like Thiago. If you look at the, the things on paper, and you look like oh they've lost so many games like that, you, you say terrible player because he just doesn't impact the game. But you look at the actual style of football, it probably is the fact that he's just in the wrong team, or he just has the wrong style of play put about him. Um, I mean, obviously, I'd like to see us win trophies. This is the thing. And I feel like there are certain players that we need and I think there's certain situations. But I feel like our board kind of understands this now. I feel like someone came in, Solskjaer probably came in and was like, look, you're way behind where you should be. I can try and get you back to where you are. Give me so many years. If not, you'll have a decent groundwork for anyone else who comes in at the very least. But I'm going to try and get United back to somewhere where they're challenging for titles, they're challenging for um, trophies and all that sort of stuff. And I think we are a few times away. I've obviously talked about right wing. I'd like to see player that's passed the eye test fantastically for me and I'd like to see United, but we're never going to get him. His Rafinha from Leeds. It's a fantastic player. Um, but that's the weird thing. Like Leeds... Uh, Style of play and like how a team plays is so, it's such a strange metric because just going on to Leeds, it's like everyone's always like, oh, I love how Leeds play football. It's so exciting to watch and everything. But you see some, like you get that with United. It's like a team that can win a load of games by a load, uh, like a high score, but then gets absolutely like battered by other teams. It's completely lauded. Like, and it's like, it's just such a weird up and down scenario. Like Marcel Bielsa came third in the manager competition from the championship. And I'm like, yeah, obviously I'm not going to deny he's a fantastic manager, but there's just such such weird... Football in, in, in its sense is just such a weird animal to just look at and try and quantify because so many different things make a team good. And so sometimes a team could be terrible or can be like not really performing. Like I say, Sheffield United last season... They had 30 goals scored 
I think about 29 goals conceded in 38 games and they came eighth. Like on paper, that's shocking. <laughs> like, but it came eighth. Like, think, because it was just, yeah, go on. I think it's just human nature though, isn't it? To simplify things, KSC like to categorize things. I mean, your point to Leeds United, I seen Sky Sports had a graphic up the other week of the entertainers. And on it contain teams just by virtue of the amount of goals per game they're considered to be entertaining so you had of course Manchester City you had Leeds United but lo and behold you had Sam Allardyce's West Bromwich Albion <laughs> and you know that's where the disparity arises for me between the eye test and the numbers I mean <laughs> just by virtue of goals conceded they're considered an entertaining team to watch I mean getting back to your Leeds United point I certainly think you look at a fan base there, a huge club leads, starved of Premier League football for 14, 15 plus years. I think they were will they got to the stage where they were willing <laughs> to take anything or anyone that would just yeah. improve the match day experience for them. Um, you see it had a grander scale, of course, at Tottenham under Pochettino, the man revolutionized the club. But I just think until we get fans back in stadiums. I don't think, for me, there's a logical conversation we can have about style of play. Yeah. Because you look at how Newcastle set up under Bruce Mourinho, how he sets up his Tottenham teams at home. For me, if you have a full St. James's Park or full White Hart Lane, there is no way in hell those two sets of fans allow that to happen. Yeah, I mean, like, you can say they made the same argument for a full Old Trafford because United's home form at the start of the season and throughout the season has been was shocking at the start, has been wavering throughout. But like most of United's big wins have come against the teams like the 4 0 against Chelsea, the 2 0 against City, all came at, at home. Like, cause there's, there's a sort of thing of the fans behind you always has been that, oh, it really helps because they really want you to score. Like, they don't want to see a nil-nil. And I feel like sometimes, as a football player, you understand that. Like, no fan, like, wants to see a nil-nil. Like, maybe against City or, like, Barcelona, when you're already, like, two-nil up in another leg, you want to see a nil-nil. But that's a very... No fan going to a ground who has paid money to see a match wants to see no goals. And I feel like that can play on a player's mind, especially. Well, we're on I want to see a bad performance. It's probably better. Well, we're on the subject of fans, I suppose we've discussed so far in this podcast, I mean, how it feels to be a United fan in the past, how it currently feels to be a United fan, but what about the future? Because you've seen, of course, led by the Glazers at Woodward, United and Liverpool, they've seemed to be at the forefront of these projects, the European Super League, Project Big Picture, I mean, although such proposals, they would cement the financial and commercial futures of the big English clubs, big European clubs from a financial standpoint. But what's the consensus among the United fans? You think consensus. it's negative? Is it? I'd imagine it's pretty negative, but there has to be some bit of acceptance there, the way things are looking. I think it's a, it's a face-saving exercise. It really is when you think about it because it really it really does all your legwork for you in terms of keeping your prestige and 
being marked both to players and all that sort of stuff that Edward Woods currently mix mash of doing um, without having to actually put any of the work in. Because you say, well, we're in a European Super League where it's the historic top eight or the big eight biggest clubs by revenue in the Premier League. You, you're instantly then just knocking the, it back to a time before Premier League revenue instantly. So you can't have players like teams like Aston Villa last season or in the past we've seen Crystal Palace couldn't ever say, oh, we want 70 million for Zaha, we want 70 million for Jack Grealish because they just wouldn't have the comparative revenue. They couldn't offer the same sort of thing. And you'd obviously see a disparity then start to come back, which is, again, this is what we've seen over the last few years. Premier League has kind of brought, in terms of the financials, clubs a lot closer together. Like, as I, as I said, you can see a team that comes up from the the, champ, uh, the championship to the Premier League knows to get a certain amount of revenue, can invest in the squad, can invest 100 million in the squad and have a go at the Premier League. They might do really well and they might stay in the Premier League and they might be able to build on it, as we saw with Leicester. Or they might fail miserably and have to restart in the championship, but then parachute payments save them that way. Um, but the fact is, is that if you start putting into European Super League, you're instantly saying, well, we have something that you don't. We can pay your players more. More people will see your player. It'll be more marketable to brands. And you just can't offer the player the same that we can. So it then instantly recreates that gap, which I feel like is what the Glazers and Edward would want because they bought into Manchester United in a climate of complete superiority between the big clubs and the little clubs. And for want of better term, in terms of American capitalism, <laughs> it's become a bit more laissez-faire throughout the whole league with everyone kind of being able to compete. And I don't think they particularly like that. <laughs> so that, so the European Super League is kind of their idea of, we'll sort it out. And team, the, the fact is that they're probably going to have teams on board for abroad because teams like, obviously in La Liga, we know that Barcelona, Real Madrid, they already agree their own their TV rights. They obviously get more than the league. Bundesliga is very similar. Bayern Munich get more than the rest of them. Juventus, all that sort of stuff, Inter Milan would happily take it to get back their prestige. And that's what they're kind of relying on. They're relying on teams who are already in the situation they are now, wanting to remain in the situation they are now, or teams that know that they are going to struggle to remain in the situation, like AC Milan, Inter Milan, before this season, taking the easy options. So I feel like that's what the Europeans... Because otherwise, why would you have teams like Arsenal in there? Why would you have... Uh, teams like AC Milan before obviously before this season why would you have like those teams that you kind of like they could be anywhere on this table like they want to be here but they want it down here it just doesn't make sense otherwise then it's just selecting certain teams that traditionally know are like-minded in the sort of ideas and I don't like it I personally like as much as I'm a United fan it's like if you kill football, what's the point of watching United? That's my way of looking at it. I mean, it's fair to say. I mean, I don't like it either. I know countless football fans I speak with, they don't like it. But mm. is it inevitable? Is it just the next frontier of football? I mean, you know, there, there was a time back in the 60s or 70s when Jimmy Hill turned, you know, two points for a win into three points. 
There was a time there in 1992 when Sky Sports revolutionised English football. Pretty, you know, I'm pretty certain if you ask people back then, they could never foresee those two things ever happening. I think this year has been great for football in general. And I feel like if you'd asked me a year ago, or a year and a half ago, if it was inevitable, I probably would have said, yeah, it's been the next five years, just how football is and how global it is. Like, if you wanted to, people want to see, for some reason, want to see Man United playing Real Madrid in Shanghai because it will easily get a full stadium of 70,000 people. And obviously, all the United fans who can't go will watch it on TV. Like, it's just a scenario. But it's been weird to watch, if you're just watching football in general, how much COVID has kind of thrown everything back into the mixer. So you've got, obviously, in the Bundesliga, Bayern Munich are still ahead, but not by as much as they used to be. PSG aren't top of their table. Juventus are fifth. Like, the Eredivisie is quite competitive. The Premier League itself, before, obviously, City started running away with it a bit, was really competitive. And we know we don't know whether that blip will happen with City, that happened with United, that happened with Tottenham, that happened with England. It could, it could easily happen because the more people keep saying that City are running away with it, obviously that it's just kind of creating a cushion now. But if they have that blip that everyone else has had, it's back to being a competitive league again. And then that, that creates the, the, then the same, the four to five major leagues that were going to be involved in this European Super League are now back to being competitive and more people are watching them than ever because they can't go to matches. And it's all a TV right thing, really. So you kind of look at the outlook now and you're like, well, if these leagues stay how they are and they stay competitive and they stay in the sort of scenario where more people are likely to watch other people's matches because they just have been and they're now used to it, you've now created extra revenue, you've now created more exciting football and you've now created a more marketable product across the board for football in Europe. So it's kind of like, at the moment, I'm like, if football stays the way it is now, I don't see it happening because I see that football, as it extends, has become more exciting than ever. Like, the thing is, is the Premier League, there's a record number of goals in the Premier League. You might say that City are running away with it, but you can go and tune into a match against people who said, oh, that'll be a no-no draw because they don't go for it, and it turns out to be 4-3, and you're like, well, that's just a brilliant game to watch. <laughs> it's mad. I think it's really deserving of its own separate podcast, as the merits of a European Super League and what that would actually do to each and every level of not just the English mm-hmm. game, but localised leagues and mainland Europe. But, um, I mean, moving back to the current, the ahead of the Manchester Derby on Sunday, you might know, but I've sent your tin hat <laughs> in the post all the way over from Dubai, so hopefully it'll get there in time. But how do you see that going? It'll be hard. It'll definitely be like a hard match. Um, it's it's a strange, like I, I said before, like you can obviously say, oh, we're going into West Brom and I, I, I expect us to lose it as much as I expect us to win it at the moment. But when you get to top six matches, it's like, it's just a certain difference you see in the squad. Like, I don't say, I don't, I'm not going to like ever say, I don't think we're going to win because I've never liked to be confident about derbies because they always can go horrifically wrong for me. Because it, it, 
there's that old saying, and it kind of does ring true that Derby's form goes out the window. Like it's it's true to about eighty percent. Like if United were tenth or eleventh, and we were playing City, you were twelve points clear at the top. I'd be like, yeah, we're gonna get battered. <laughs> this is not gonna be a fun time. But you've seen it before, where United just kind of can turn it on at a moment's notice. And I'm I'm hoping for a good match. I'm hoping for once I don't have to see nil nil. <laughs> That's 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 my that's my benchmark of what I want to see, and I just I just want to see us play well. That's all. Mm-hmm. I want to make us to see City makes City look vulnerable. That's even if it's moments of the game, because I'd like to see us make them look vulnerable and win. Because the fact is, is then that inspires confidence in everyone else. Because the fact is, if we if we beat City, that unbeaten run or winning run is out the window. Like. No one cares about it anymore. No one goes into a match to say, well, they're on a 21 unbeaten run. They say, well, they just lost last game. So it shows that they can lose. And it, it kind of, it again, it's it, it's moments. Like, that's the thing. Like, moments can be in games. They can be the small things in games. They can just be moments in the season. You've seen it, uh, I think I can say with Chelsea. I think was it was like 2009. You were like top of the league at Christmas and you lost like one game. And it was like, everyone was like, how have they lost that? Like, they're completely dominating everyone. And then from that point forward, you just fell apart. Like oh, everyone came. Yeah, everyone just came to like, that's what I mean. Everyone just came to Chelsea and you were like, where's this team that were completely controlling the ball? Where was this team that like had a complete like confidence in the front of the net? And you were just, every single team was just coming and just being like, nope, you're not having that. We're taking that off you and we're going and scoring. Like it was just mad to watch the sort of, the level that you were at and the level that you came down from and it was just stemming from like one result that just changed everyone's mindset about you I think that's it it, though as you said Casey I mean football is the reason why we love it is because it's just a game of moments be it Aguero at the Etihad in 2012 or a few years you probably that one in because I made you remind you of Chelsea (laughs) for balance uh, Pogba's two headers against City in 2018 to win that game 3-2 uh, the game last season, the 2-1 at the Etihad, uh, Rashford's double, or Martial and Rashford, I believe. Mm. That was a perfect game plan executed by Ali that day. But it's just the reason why football fans love the game itself, it's moments. It's that kind of bedlam, that ecstasy, as you spoke about earlier on, when McTominay scored from 45 yards out against City last season. It's trying to bring that back. And yeah. I mean, you see the TV companies at the moment, they're doing their best to kind of artificially manufacture that. But nothing beats being there. And I think the Euros may be a little bit too soon this summer, personally speaking. But if we can get to the first game week of the Premier League next season with fans back in the stadium, I think, yeah, it'll be worth it. First game of the Premier League of fans next uh, next season. United versus Chelsea. No, no. (laughs) Momentum. Um. Yeah, it, it, it is getting back to it because obviously, like you, you, you've seen the TV's attempts to fill it up before. I think the biggest example of that was two or three years ago. With it, I think it was Red Monday, and for a week, Sky Sports News was just United are playing Liverpool. It's going to be the greatest match. These two, two absolute titans of football. They're playing fantastic football. They're getting the results. They're coming head to head as on Monday, next day repetition, next day repetition, and everyone was trying to overhype it. And it was fun. I like like the coverage was the the most 
like they, they made like movie trailers of this match and you're like it's just like an it's the first fixture between these two clubs in the season it doesn't even like affect the title race really because it can just change comes the day build up throughout the day to this match no no and it was one of the most boring matches of football i've ever seen in my life like it was honestly just terrible to watch like it was no one no one really wanted to win no one was trying to pass it was just like but it was just built up and the fact is you can't manufacture it like you said it's about moments like people who do coaching uh, i know they say football a player on a football pitch influences the actual game on the ball about five minutes that's all they really have in terms of to like obviously you have players that do so much more because it's just that's just how they play but in general on average about five minutes of the game but when you actually look at that on a wider set wider, wider aspect it's probably only about like eight to ten minutes of a game that's actually like exciting like you see highlight reels like they're only like five to six to seven minutes long like the fact is is that you watch a game of football and only seven minutes of it is actually what you want to see because it's the goals it's the defending it's the great saves it's the blocks and all that sort of thing so you say like when you break it down that way you can say can you beat a team over 90 minutes probably not but can you beat a team in seven minutes like, can you save the great shots they have? Can you score a goal past their defense? When you look at it like that, you're like, yeah, you could probably beat anyone. Like, as even the smallest team, if you get the right circumstances, you make the right run, the player doesn't track your run because they just aren't switched on for that just because it's the 58th minute and they've had an out to do and they're just kind of like strolling through the game at that point. Anything can happen in football. And that's really what I think a lot of media miss they try and expand football into this week-long event this one match into a week-long event when really it's all about what's it 10 seconds of a game really and that's something you can never capture through media and you can only really see on a match because when you're there freezing cold and you're just waiting for something to happen as soon as it does happen you're fully locked in on it blind love really at times (laughs) it really is but, um, I mean, Casey, it's been absolutely superb speaking with you again. We're definitely going to have to get you on for another episode in the near future. But if anybody, if anybody wants to connect with you on social media to perhaps speak Man United, Dolphins, Peter Walton, where's best? Um, well, my Twitter is at Casey underscore Evans underscore. You'll probably find it's uh, straight link with Stratford Paddock, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I'm on Stratford Paddock. I am on YouTube, Casey Evans do scout reports on there about every football, as I said. Um, players behind me, this is my set for YouTube, so you'll probably see this very common set if you ever watch one of my videos. done a video recently on Eduardo Camavinga, an interesting aspect of a defensive midfielder that you know he might go for, might not, that sort of thing. Uh, well, I do every sort of team, so I do that sort of thing. So, yeah, Casey Evans on YouTube, five-minute scout reports if you want to have a look at that. And, yeah, I'm just, I'm just about, usually... Just if, if if you want someone talking trash about United and you turn it on, might be there. You never know. <laughs> Fantastic. I'll be certain to link everything in the show notes below anyways, Casey. But uh, yeah. top man, speak soon. Yeah, speak soon, man. Cheers for me on. Take care, Casey.